A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Great to have you with us and lots to get to this Wednesday, including a convoy of international inspectors heading to Ukraine's embattled nuclear power plant amid ongoing safety fears. Plus, tributes pouring in for Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, who died yesterday at the age of 91. We're live in Moscow with the latest. But first, a look at the markets. U.S. stocks on target for a higher open after a third day of losses for the major averages. Europe, however, trading mostly in the red. Wall Street closing lower Tuesday as new numbers on consumer confidence and job openings showed the U.S. economy still on a solid footing, increasing the chances that the Fed will have to continue to hike rates aggressively. ECB officials hinting that an aggressive three-quarters of a point interest rate hike might be necessary in the eurozone, too. Just released numbers show inflation there hitting fresh records and energy supply fears. The, uh, the ECB holds its next policy meeting next week. Meantime, a mostly lower close in Asia. Chinese shares hitting four-week lows as COVID cases spread and factory output weakens. More on the markets later in the program. But first, Russia has shut down the Nord Stream 1 pipeline again. Russian state energy giant Gazprom has halted all deliveries for three days in what it says is a planned shutdown for maintenance. The pipeline is Germany's main source of Russian natural gas, piling pressure on the region to find other supplies from other sources as it stocks up on fuel ahead of winter. Let's bring in Anna Stewart. She joins us now. Anna, great to see you. You know, Europe can likely cope with a three-day shutdown, but how would it get through winter if Gazprom doesn't restart supplies? And that has been the fear, of course, now for many weeks and months that Russia could just simply turn off the gas taps to Europe. And it's a fear uh, once again. Now, I just got off the phone with an energy expert from Bruegel and he said, listen, there's some good news and there's some bad news. The good news is Europe's actually done very well in terms of filling up its storage facilities as a block on average. They've actually already reached the target they set for November with storage facilities around 80% full when it comes to gas. And for some countries like Germany, which is the biggest energy importer, they're actually above that. They're above the 80% threshold. The bad news is energy, you know, for Europe, they need more than they can actually store. So according to the EU, the EU normally in a usual winter would take about 25 to 30% of the gas consumed from storage. It continues to need other gas. So if it's not coming from Russia, it may need more gas from Norway, the Netherlands, uh, LNG from Qatar or the United States, or, of course, energy from other alternative sources, whether we're talking solar or wind or nuclear or even coal. Speaking to these experts, they've said now for many, many months, the one thing Europe can do, and it still has time to do it, to get itself through winter potentially without any Russian gas at all is to reduce its consumption. The EU did agree last month to reduce its consumption by 15% between August and March next year. It was a voluntary agreement. If it can actually inter- if, if it can actually implement that, that sort of reduction, perhaps Europe will get through this winter even without Russian gas, although a lot does depend, Alison, on the weather and how mild a winter this will be. Yeah, and how much uh, you know customers are willing to cut back every so slightly, each one of them, which is which is certainly hard to gauge. And then and then there's a new inflation reading, uh, the eurozone inflation hitting a new record high of nine point one percent in August. Clearly, this is making life unaffordable, you know, for from households to businesses. 
Yeah, that's just it. It's not just a squeeze, is it, on households or businesses. This is actually unaffordable for so many people. Inflation at another record. And we're seeing, actually, the energy price increase filtering through to other categories like food at this stage. In terms of energy, prices are now up 38% uh, over the last 12 months for Europe. And different countries are trying to manage this in different ways, whether it's Belgium with um, some power tax cuts to try and reduce energy bills for households and businesses, or whether it's like in France, which is introducing an energy cap. The problem, of course, though, with those policies is it really does just push the cost back onto the state and who pays the bill? Well, the taxpayers. So it kind of socialises the cost of energy. On Monday, the EU Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, did hint that perhaps they will intervene in Europe's power price-setting system, which is really rather complicated, but it wants to disconnect the impact of gas prices from the rest of energy. That will take time. So at this stage, really, the big solution for households and businesses as well is to reduce their consumption uh, to try and get through this winter. Alison. Okay, Anna Stewart, thanks so much. In Ukraine, a team from the International Atomic Energy Agency arriving in the city of Zaporizhia to inspect the nuclear power plant. Shelling around the Russian-occupied power station has sparked fears of a potential nuclear disaster. We just heard from the IAEA's Rafael Grossi at the plant about the mission's goal to prevent a nuclear accident. Listen. Okay, we're having trouble getting that soundbite um, on for you. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and go to Melissa Bell, who's live for us in Kyiv with the details. Melissa. Uh, Alison, uh, the 14-man uh, strong uh, mission uh, uh, on its way to Zaporizhia plant, what we expect is for that visit to take place actually uh, tomorrow morning. They've traveled to Zaporizhia itself uh, today. It was before he left uh, that the uh, head of the IAA mission, Rafael Grossi, spoke to journalists about his intention, telling them that uh, he hoped uh, to be able uh, to carry out the inspection, but also to leave behind a permanent mission uh, at the uh, power plant. And that is something that Moscow, in the shape of its representative uh, to the IAA in Vienna, has welcomed. And there had been some question about whether or not that would actually be possible. So uh, there is some relief there, I think, that uh, this Russian side accepts uh, the idea. In terms of how long uh, the visit of these inspectors will last, though, beyond the ones that will stay behind and the mission that will stay inside the plant, uh, there's some question about how long it's going to go on. It's due to start uh, tomorrow morning. There had, as you mentioned a moment ago, been concerns about whether or not the team would actually make it to the Zaporizhia plant. Uh, uh, yesterday at a meeting with the Ukrainian president, we heard from President Zelensky, who said uh, that it was time the whole area were demilitarized because of those fears uh, that his uh, his advisors were talking about yesterday, the fears that uh, Russian forces were using the base as a military base and making those corridors that the IAEA inspectors would have used to get there inaccessible. Now, uh, there is more hope today that this will actually go ahead. As I said, some question about how long the actual inspection would last. We've been hearing from one of the leaders of the Russian-backed uh, administration in the region now uh, that is in which the plant is now occupied by uh, Russian forces. And he was saying that he expected the inspection to last for a single day. Of course, it's a lot to get through. There are six nuclear reactors on this site. And uh, hearing from Rafael Grossi before he left, he said he'd been hoping there to be there uh, several days. So a number of questions exactly as to how long this is going to last ahead of us, uh, uh, Alison, but more hope today than there was yesterday that it will actually go ahead.
Yeah, and still a lot of questions as to how much the team can really get through if they only spend one day. We shall see how much time they spend. Let me ask you this. uh, As fierce battles are being reported as Ukraine tries to take back the Russian-occupied Kherson region, what can you tell us about that? Well, this is uh, now day three of that counteroffensive, Alison, crucial, of course, uh, to Ukrainian forces. Now, they're not giving much access to journalists, either uh, Western Ukrainian to those front lines, non-military uh, journalists, that is, civilian journalists, are not being allowed through. No footage for the time being is provided. But uh, they are speaking of their early success in recapturing some of those villages uh, around the Kherson region. Now, the reason this is as significant as it is, first of all, that it's the first time really in six months beyond the initial setbacks of Russian forces, that there's any real hope on the uh, side of the Ukrainians. We heard yesterday an interesting piece of news, which is that the American administration, in its last couple of military aid packages to Kyiv, had actually targeted very specifically uh, the uh, kinds of equipment, military hardware it was giving to the demands of uh, Kyiv with a view to this particular counteroffensive. So bits of equipment, uh, artillery, for instance, ammunitions, specifically targeted at this long-planned and much-anticipated uh, counteroffensive. Of course, on the Russian side, we're hearing uh, more about uh, the idea beyond the acknowledgement that it's happened, that it is, for the time being, uh, not going according to Ukraine's plan. But again, from the Ukrainian side, a real sense of hope that there have been some early successes and that some of those Russian troops uh, on the right bank of the Dnieper around uh, the city of Kherson itself uh, have been on the back foot, Alison. Okay, CNN's Melissa Bell, thanks for all that great context. Tributes have been paid to the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who's died at age, tw- at age 91. At home, he was known for policies like glasnost and perestroika meant to reform the Soviet government and economy. And abroad, he engaged with U.S. and Western leaders, calling for nuclear disarmament and bringing an end to the Cold War. For more, let's bring in Fred Plekin. He joins us from Moscow. So what's the reaction from Russia about Mm -hmm. this news. Well, I would say here in Russia, if you look at the Russian leadership, they certainly say that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev really was a larger-than-life politician, someone who had a huge role uh, in the international stage. In fact, that's what a condolence telegram by Vladimir Putin that's been made official, that's been published, that's what that says. However, of course, there are also a lot of critical voices here in Russia. There's a lot of people who believe that with some of the policies that Mr. Gorbachev conducted, namely, of course, bring, helping bring down the Iron Curtain, Um, that uh, Russia's position was weakened and some of the international security order that we see in Europe right now, you know, many people here in Russia aren't very happy uh, with that. It's uh, quite interesting because there was always uh, mixed relations between Mikhail Gorbachev and Vladimir Putin. Um, uh, Christian Amanpour, she did an interview with Mikhail Gorbachev in 2012. That was when Vladimir Putin came back into office after having been prime minister in Russia uh, for four years. And she asked uh, whether, um, whether Mikhail Gorbachev believed that Vladimir Putin was capable of doing fundamental reforms. Let's listen in. Do you think that President Putin is committed to any kind of reform and will the people's voice be heard under his presidency? I think it'll be hard for him given his nature to do this, but there is no other way for him but to move toward greater democracy in Russia, toward real democracy in Russia, because there is no other way for Russia to find a way out of its dead end in which it is now. 
So as you can see there, somewhat uh, of a critical voice there from Mikhail Gorbachev. That was again in 2012 when Vladimir Putin came back into the presidency after having been prime minister for four years. One of the things we do have to point out, though, is that Mikhail Gorbachev did support uh, Vladimir Putin's policies on Crimea, the uh, on, on Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And Mikhail Gorbachev also really put a lot of blame uh, towards the West, as he put it, for the confrontational relations that Russia has had over the past couple of years uh, with, uh, with the Western bloc. So that's certainly something where it seemed as though at least Mikhail Gorbachev, from his position, supported what Vladimir Putin was doing. But if you look at Russia today, um, you know, he is still someone who's viewed very critically by a lot of Russians. A lot of them feel that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which, of course, he's the one who signed that off, basically, um, that Russia was essentially humiliated on the international stage, that it was in decline militarily, economically, and, of course, socially as well. And that's certainly something that a lot of people have not forgotten. A lot of people said that after the Soviet Union collapsed, they felt that their lives became a lot tougher than they were before, Allison. Okay, Fred Plekin, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. A blockbuster court filing from the U.S. Department of Justice says government documents were likely concealed and removed from a storage area at Mar-a-Lago in an effort to obstruct the FBI's investigation at Donald Trump's residence. You're looking here at a photo released by the DOJ of highly classified documents recovered from the search. Kara Scannell is here with us in New York with the latest. Kara, great to see you. So how does the DOJ lay out their evidence of obstruction? Good morning, Allison. Well, I mean, in this kind of historic filing we've got from the Department of Justice, they say that they've recovered 320 classified documents from Mar-a-Lago. That's where the former president now resides. And they say that when they went in and executed this search warrant three weeks ago, they obtained twice as many classified documents than they had been given by Trump's team when they were subpoenaed. So saying here that that is, you know, obviously a significant increase in the number of classified documents from what the Trump team had voluntarily turned over. And one of the reasons why they argued that they needed to have this search warrant is they said that there was likely likely concealed and removed documents from the storage room in the basement at Mar-a-Lago. They say that they found three classified documents in the desk drawers in the office belonging to the former president. This is clearly, you know, an issue that DOJ is saying that they believe that there were questions here. As you show on those, the screen before you, you can see that these are secret and top secret records. In fact, they said that some of the FBI agents and the DOJ officials who already have security clearances needed to get additional clearances in order to review these records. Now, all of this has come out because Trump's team wants to get a special master, an independent third person to review these materials for things such as attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. And what DOJ argues here is that there's no need for that. They've completed this review already. They say that, in fact, these records do not belong to the former president. They are government property. So he doesn't have even standing in this case to bring this. And they say that part of the issue that they have is they think that there could be significant harm to the government's um, position here because they're already conducting both the DOJ and the intel agencies a review of these classified materials to see if any proactive steps need to be taken to protect sources and methods. Now, Trump will have until 8 p.m. tonight to respond to this filing, and then both sides will be in court tomorrow in West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, will argue before the judge. And she has indicated that she is leaning toward giving Trump this special master. However, she said that over the weekend. That was well before all of this additional material has now come into the public. Allison? Okay, Kara Skidell, thanks for all your great reporting.
In other headlines, Queen Elizabeth will not travel to London next week to appoint Britain's new prime minister. Instead, a ceremony will be held at Balmoral, her country residence in Scotland. It's the first time in her seven decades on the throne that the Queen will have overseen a change in leadership from anywhere other than Buckingham Palace. A new airstrike has reportedly hit the northern Ethiopian region of Tigray. It comes just days after fighting resumed between Ethiopia's central government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. They've blamed each other for the renewed conflict, which is disrupting deliveries of food aid. The U.N. says millions of people in the region desperately need the help. We get more details now from CNN's Larry Madowo. Queuing at this makeshift aid center in northern Tigray has become a daily task for these women in the town of Adwa. This video was captured in June and July, but the Catholic missionary who runs this small aid distribution center says the situation has become even more dire since then. The missionary says hundreds arrive daily as early as 3 a.m., children in tow, desperately seeking any food aid. But every day is the same, only small amounts of a porridge-like drink are available here. The United Nations says the civil war in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region has left more than 90% of the region in urgent need of assistance. In March, a fragile humanitarian truce between Ethiopian troops and Tigrayan fighters finally allowed aid to start flowing in. But with little fuel to distribute supplies, the United Nations says what has arrived still hasn't, quote, translated into increased humanitarian assistance. Our colleagues are telling us that the humanitarian situation in northern Ethiopia continues to be alarming. Much of the aid has been stuck in the capital of the Tigray region, Mekale, far from the areas where it is needed the most. But fighting flared again last week, raising new concerns about aid distribution. We, of course, renew our call on the parties to the conflict to immediately facilitate the resumption of rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian workers and supplies into all of northern Ethiopia in accordance with international humanitarian law. One 38-year-old single mother of five told CNN that her kids are now weak and prone to illness without regular meals. Still, they join this queue early, hoping for whatever little nourishment they can get. On days there isn't enough, they skip school to beg door-to-door or scavenge for wild greens. The head of the World Health Organization, who's also from Tigray, calls what's playing out there the worst disaster on earth. I can tell you that the humanitarian crisis in Tigray is more than Ukraine. Without any exaggeration. And I said it many months ago, maybe the reason is the color of the skin of the people in Tigray. The Ethiopian government lashed out in response, calling his comments unethical. Larry Madowo, CNN. Coming up on First Move, from sky-high inflation to Russia's war, investors have had a lot on their plates. I'll speak with president of the New York Stock Exchange about a host of challenges ahead. Plus, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's an electric flying taxi. We've got the latest player in the aerospace market hoping to revolutionize travel. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. futures are trading higher as we count down to the opening bell at the NYSE. Tech stocks look like they're the strongest gainers in the pre-market. Tech is on the rise despite disappointing third quarter sales numbers from computer maker Hewlett Packard, whose shares are set to fall. 6% in the early going. Shares of Snap are sinking, too, amid reports it will lay off 20% of its workforce. The major U.S. averages are on track to close out August, trading with steep losses, with the Nasdaq currently down around 4% for the month. That said, U.S. stocks remain some 8% above their 52-week lows, which they hit in June. The New York Stock Exchange is navigating a challenging 2022 as interest rate uncertainty rattles markets and IPO activity falls dramatically. Despite the challenges, a surge in trading volumes has benefited the bottom line of the exchange, as well as its parent company, ICE. A new agreement between American and Chinese officials could keep a number of big cap Chinese stocks listed on the NYSE as well. Lynn Martin joins us now. She is the president of the New York Stock Exchange, and she joins us from the NYSE. Welcome to the show. Glad you can take some time out today. Thanks for having me, Allison. So you have been in your position as the 68th president of the New York Stock Exchange. You've been in that slot less than a year. Characterize yep. for us how it's been for you. Well, it's been certainly an interesting time. And, you know, if I think about the last eight and a half months that I've been in the seat, I'm incredibly proud of the way our markets have functioned, the way our technology has functioned, and really the way the conversation has continued to evolve, not just with our listed companies, but also with those companies that are looking to enter the public markets when the volatility calms down in the markets. Over, yeah. over this period of time, you know, as you highlighted in your opening remarks, we've seen tremendous volatility. And when I think about the volatility, our job as the exchange is to ensure that our systems are performing at the highest levels possible and adding transparency to the markets. And I'm so proud of what we've been able to achieve over this period of time. Lynn, I know a big part of your job is to convince private companies to list on the NYSE, but IPO activity this year is certainly shaping up uh, to be the worst year for IPO volumes in a really long time. But that's coming off a big boom for the IPO space, uh, which 2021 was a record year. When do you anticipate more listings coming? And, and I, I'm also curious to hear what you're hearing from companies themselves. Yeah. What's holding them back? Yeah. And, you know, what the viewers actually see is, you know, when a company makes their public market debut, what they don't see is all of the conversations that we have with those companies that are seeking to enter the public markets. And those conversations haven't really slowed down. The public market currency is stronger than ever. People want to come to the public markets. They see the value in being able to reward employees and being able to use the currency that the deep liquid public markets provide to fund research and development, to fund M&A uh, uh, activity. So those conversations have absolutely continued. So it's really a question of when, not if, private companies join the public markets. And I can tell you from the conversations that I'm having with CEOs of private companies, that intent has never been stronger. They're just waiting for the right time. 
U.S. and China, the U.S. and China reaching an agreement to share the audits of U.S. listed Chinese companies. So it averted an outcome that would have forced some of China's biggest companies to leave American exchanges, including the NYSE. U.S. officials are a little more skeptical that China's going to follow through with the terms of this deal. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. You know, I think that's a really the agreement that got announced on Friday is a really positive step for the global economy. You know, it highlights the fact that the U.S. markets are the core of the global economy. We provide the the most uh, transparent markets. We provide the biggest pool of investors, and we provide the security of investor protection. So I'm optimistic based on what we heard on Friday that we're going to find a path forward to allow those companies to remain listed in the U.S., to gain access to the biggest pool of investors, and to Mm -hmm. balance that with the investor protections that are really the hallmark of our U.S. markets. I want to ask you about a particularly tricky issue going on in New York City when it when it comes to crime because of uh, these attacks that have happened on the city subway system and as everybody kind of comes back to work after Labor Day. And there has been discontent in the business community, both in private and in public, about the rise of crime in New York City. I'm curious what your feeling is on this, especially as many financial firms, once again, are pushing their workers to return to offices after Labor Day. You know, we see the value of in-person collaboration. It's really what is some of the special sauce that continues to drive the New York Stock Exchange forward with an entrepreneurial spirit after 230 years. And we do see more and more of our colleagues returning to the office. Uh, I'm a New Yorker through and through, born and bred New Yorker, so I bleed New York City. Um, And I know we're in, in touch very regularly with the mayor's office. And Mayor Adams has an action plan that he's enacting to keep us safe, to keep us uh, moving forward forward with that strong New York City spirit. You've got one minute because I don't want that bell ringing and and hiding what you have to say. It's going to ring right behind you. I want to ask you about Friday, Serena Williams ringing the opening bell on behalf of her company, Serena Ventures. I know you had a visit with her as well. What was that like? It was amazing. I mean, Serena Williams, you know, arguably the greatest uh, tennis player of all time. Um, But the way that I think of Serena is someone who has carried herself with strength and with grace. And I'm really excited to see what she does in her new chapter, particularly given that her venture capital firm is focused on providing funding to those founders who may not traditionally get access to capital. I don't think it's a mistake that because of her efforts already in the venture capital world, she has funded 16 unicorns um, as part of her of her new career. So I'm incredibly excited to celebrate her new chapter. And that's really what Friday was about, celebrating her new chapter and thanking her for carrying herself with such strength, such grace in uh, the U.S. tennis world. All right. About 40 seconds from the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. I don't want it to to cover anything you have to say because it is loud. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Lynn Martin, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Still to come, Europe's energy crisis is deepening as Russia shuts down a major natural gas pipeline again. How this could impact supplies for the winter after the break. 
Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. As we reported earlier in the show, Russia has halted natural gas supplies through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline for three days, deepening an energy crisis that has sent inflation in Europe to a record high of 9 percent. In recent months, Gazprom has slashed supplies through the pipeline to just 20 percent of normal capacity, sending prices for gas and electricity soaring and raising concerns of shortages this winter. Germany is working to become less dependent on Russian energy, but regulators say reaching a target to have gas storage 95 percent full by the beginning of November, that that could be challenging. Joining me now is Henning Gloystein, Director of Energy, Climate and Resources at Eurasia Group. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So how much of an impact do you think is this latest shutdown of the Nord Stream 1 having on Europe's ability to refuel ahead of the winter season, which typically begins in October. Will there be enough for the winter? So if Nord Stream 1 remains off as scheduled at the moment for just a couple of days, then that should be okay. I mean, okay, it won't be great. It's another disruption. It's another spanner in the wheels to get to those 95% that Germany wants to get to by November 1st. But uh, the, the Germans are actually doing all right at the moment. They, the, their inventories are currently filled to about 85%. Uh, that is ahead of schedule. Um, and so they are doing okay, but uh, every little outage at the moment um, um, makes the target more difficult. And of course, uh, filling storage sites will become more difficult quite soon because probably in around two to three weeks' time is when heating demand starts kicking off. And then uh, people will use, consume more gas, which means less will be available to be put in storage. Yeah, meantime, as Europe is trying to store enough gas for the long winter, Russia is burning it, and it's gas that presumably otherwise would have, you know, been exported to Europe through the pipeline. What kind of statement do you think that Vladimir Putin is making by doing this? Uh, so the flaring, the burning the gas in Russia is probably a bit of a technical necessity. It's an awkward situation Russia is in as well, because all the gas that the Russians are currently not sending to Europe um, uh, originally was put into storage in Russia. Now those inventories in Russia are full as well. So in order to avoid reducing production in Russia as well, which would reduce the revenue, which would mean people have to be sent home, they are flaring the gas that is associated with oil production instead of um, putting it into storage or selling it. So it's a bit of an um, awkward situation for Russia as well. Uh, cutting the gas supply to Europe right now, what it does is it inflicts economic pain on Europe, but they are still sending some gas via other pipelines to to Europe, which means Gazprom is still making money via the high prices. And we saw today Gazprom has reported record profits. So for Russia, this is an opportunity to still make money while actually inflicting economic pain on Europe. Um, and that is probably Moscow's policy here. How much of a possibility do you think it is that Putin will really weaponize energy exports when, when the, the dead of winter comes in Europe and he'll just cut off gas supply for an extended period of time to Europe? Is he capable of that? I'm certain he's capable of it, yes. Um, whether it'll happen, we'll, we'll see, because the remaining gas that is still flowing from Russia to Europe via Ukraine, interestingly, and also via Turkey, is actually reaching uh, people in Europe, so governments in Europe, where there's still some form of support for Russia. Maybe not support, but not outright hostility. So some of this gas is going to Hungary, which um, uh, has been where the President Orban has been very shy in criticizing Putin. And of course, it also serves Turkey still, and Turkey has not imposed any sanctions on 
Russia. So we don't think at this stage Russia will totally cut off all of Europe. But the fact that they're cutting Nord Stream 1 to Germany, and Germany was prior to the war, um, Russia's biggest single gas client, is is a sign that uh, Russia is clearly willing to use gas as an economic weapon ahead of winter and probably also during next winter. What energy alternatives does Europe have if natural gas prices spike even higher than where they are now or if supply runs low? Is it possible to quickly pivot to other sources like nuclear, wind, solar, coal, or is just that that that's not easily done? So, so most of these things are possible to a certain degree. So the Germans, the Dutch and the Italians, for instance, are ramping up coal-fired power generation so that you can replace gas power units. And that means that more gas is available for industry and to put into storage for heating. Uh, other countries uh, are buying more, virtually everybody in Europe is buying more liquefied natural gas, including from the United States. Um, so that is an op- to, um, option. You can't just ramp up new fi- nuclear power stations at short notice. That doesn't work. Um, wind and solar, if it's windy and uh, sunny, that definitely works. So every Everything helps on the margin, but the key thing will be to reduce consumption. And this is what every government in the EU is currently telling consumers and industries, like, you must reduce your normal consumption, probably by, by about 15 to 20% against normal levels in order to get through winter without severe forced rationing. Do you think people will reduce their consumption? I mean, it's voluntary. It's voluntary in most countries, but um, the first mandatory uh, restrictions on uh, on usage have come into place or are about to come into place. For instance, cooling or heating um, minimum maximum levels, uh, uh, banning advertisement after dark. Uh, so light advertisement, um, so using light for advertisements after dark. Uh, so this sort of stuff is coming. And of course, for all consumers, whether you're in Britain or in Germany or in Italy, your uh, retail, your tariffs are going literally going through the roof. So uh, high prices are going to cut consumption almost certainly. But it's going to be painful and probably at the cost of a recession. All right. Henning Gloystein, Director of Energy, Climate and Resources at Eurasia Group. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we take to the skies and test flights by a British firm hoping for a slice of the flying taxi market. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. markets are up and running on this last trading day of August, a mostly higher start to the trading session with some weakness in the Dow. All this is investors get a fresh look at the health of the U.S. jobs market. Just released numbers show the private sector adding a weaker than expected 132,000 jobs this month. The real test, that comes Friday with the government's August U.S. jobs report. Meantime, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond are plunging more than 20% in early trading. The struggling U.S. retailer, whose stock is popular with momentum investors, says it will raise more cash through stock sales. The company also announcing a turnaround plan today that includes substantial layoffs and store closings. Let's get more now with Paul Monica. He joins us now. Paul, I, I guess investors, how, do, how are they feeling about this turnaround plan? Is it obvious with the stock tumbling over 20 percent? Yeah, there's a lot going on here, Allison, that uh, we could digest. I mean, for one, it's never a good sign to see a company that is not profitable and is closing as many stores as they plan to and laying off 20 percent of their workforce, potentially, that's that's clearly not great news. I think investors are probably also disheartened by the fact that Bed Bath & Beyond wants to raise more money by selling new stock, which would dilute 
the value of current shareholders. And that's you know not insignificant for many of these meme investors on Reddit that have bid Bed Bath & Beyond higher in the hopes that a turnaround was going to be real and spectacular, to quote a Seinfeld reference. Obviously not happening. And, you know, concerns as well about management because CEO Mark Tritton, who came in a few years ago from Target, was a much ballyhooed hire about how he would turn them around. He's gone and the company is still looking for a new CEO. And, you know, what's interesting is investors, they're still trading this stock wildly. It's a very heavily traded stock. Um, so investors are, 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 are busy with it. But, I mean, what's, what's the longevity plan here for, for Bed Bath & Beyond? I mean, will this... Will this store survive? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. I think a lot of people are wondering what Bed Bath & Beyond announced this morning. Will that be enough? Will they need to do more? Will they have to cut even more jobs, sell more, uh, close more stores, and maybe even sell assets? Because, Allison, one of the things that people were sort of expecting was maybe an announcement from Bed Bath & Beyond that they could spin off or sell a stake in its bye-bye baby unit in order to raise cash. But the company announced that after a strategic review, they feel that the bye-bye baby brand still fits with the broader Bed Bath & Beyond footprint. So they are going to keep it and not make any uh, potential changes to try and monetize that asset. And then there's also still all the drama about Ryan Cohen. Remember, he was the uh, GameStop uh, chairman and Chewy co-founder made a big investment in the stock, and that led to a lot of hope and speculation among meme investors that he had a turnaround plan for the company. But then just a few weeks ago, he sold his entire stake, and that left a lot of investors wondering, what is Cohen seeing that we're not? Yeah, well, I think we just need to take a, a look with, with our glasses and see really what's going on here. Anyway, uh, Paula Monica, thanks so much for breaking all that down. In the race to get flying taxis into the sky, one British firm says it's ready to test fly this prototype. Vertical Aerospace says it has the biggest pre-order book in the business, with American Airlines, Virgin Atlantic, and others lining up to buy this zero-emissions, fully electric aircraft. The company says the five-seater vehicle, which lands and takes off vertically, is 100 times quieter than a helicopter. It has a top speed of 202 miles an hour and a range of over 100 miles. Stephen Fitzpatrick is the CEO of Vertical Aerospace, and he joins us now. Thanks for coming on the show. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. So uh, I know that you've completed ground tests of the prototype, the VX4. So talk with us how on track you are with these test flights and what sort of testing you actually need to, to carry out at this point. Yeah, so we've just finished the um, build and the commissioning of our X4 prototype, um, and we're going to be starting our test flight campaign in the in the coming weeks. Um, unlike a lot of uh, our other competitors, we are embarking on a fully crewed uh, test flight program. So we're these these aircraft are piloted. So you said it's five seats, it's one pilot, four passengers, uh, and we're going to have a fully manned test flight program. Uh, going live in the weeks to come. So um, we're quite far down the development pathway uh, and I'm really excited to be taken to the skies. So I understand that you say the, the VX4 is 100 times safer than a helicopter. How can you justify that without any actual flights, though? So the, the standard that we are going to certify the aircraft to, uh, we're working with the CAA in the UK and the YASA, which is like the equivalent of the FAA, um, 
they require us to meet the same safety standards as an Airbus, a Boeing, uh, a, a conventional aircraft that you'll fly on. So normally, light aircraft or helicopters are certified at a safety rating 100 times less. Uh, and so to certify these aircraft at all, they have to be uh, the same standard as the safest aircraft in the skies. And so where are you in the certification process, though? So we've been in uh, working with EASA and CA for, for three years now, I think. We're working through certification of the battery systems, the aircraft design, uh, all of that. So we're probably three years away uh, from entry into service. And um, one of the things that makes these aircraft so safe is having multiple uh, battery systems, multiple rotors and motors. So we've got a lot of what we call redundancy, uh, making these aircraft inherently safe to fly in. There's still a lot of work to do to prove that out with the regulator, but you know we're well on track. Okay, you have large pre-order bookings with American Airlines and Virgin among your customers, but I'm wondering if they can back out of these deals or, or, or are these firm commitments by these, by these partners? Well, there's always some flexibility in, in aircraft order contracts, just the nature of the industry. But um, we were the first eVTOL manufacturer to announce uh, pre-delivery payments from American Airlines. So they've actually put a down payment against the delivery for their first 50 aircraft. Uh, I think they have uh, orders and options to take them up to 350 BX4s. Um, but they've, they've booked the delivery slots for their first 50. So, uh, you know, that's a really strong sign of confidence in the technology and, and, and the market that's to come. How do you envision this whole thing up and running? Um, you know, let's say, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a passenger and I need to get to the airport from my office here in New York. How do I go ahead and fly in, on one of these? Walk me through A to Z. I mean, uh, to begin with, uh, anywhere that you can see a helicopter flying, you'll be able to see this eVTOL aircraft flying. So uh, it'll be possible to uh, to book a flight from downtown Manhattan to, to JFK. The, the trip time is going to be like six, seven minutes. Um, the cost is the thing that's really exciting. Um, at a dollar per passenger mile, uh, these electric aircraft operate at about a fifth of the price of conventional helicopters. So combined with the much lower noise footprint, we think this is really going to democratize urban air travel, uh, enabling thousands and thousands of passengers every day uh, to use uh, the air taxis. And, and not just in cities like New York, but also all over the world. We have orders uh, from Japan Airlines. Uh, we've got uh, customers in Sao Paulo and Brazil, all over Europe. So we're going to be seeing these aircraft mm -hmm. flying uh, over cities all over the world in just a few years. Very quick, just want to ask this, because I know the skies right now are, are crowded with aircraft. How is this going to work um, even just in the New York City area, for instance, crowded cities that have um, crowded airspace? Yeah, so working with air traffic management regulators uh, in the U.S. and Europe, UK, this is something we're definitely working on right now. One of the, the benefits of these aircraft, because they're piloted, they, they do fit in with existing air traffic regulation. Over time, uh, as we see uh, more air taxis in the sky, it's obvious that we're going to need to see some changes um, to that airspace regulation. But I think the thing that is going to come between now and then is going to be an increase in things like cargo carrying drones and, and automated uh, uh, aircraft. So th there's a whole host of uh, improvements and upgrades that are coming to air traffic management systems. Um, but I think the thing that I, I would want to point out Whilst this technology is available today and these air. Oh, 
We lost him there. Um, I'll go ahead and post uh, his interview on my Twitter if you uh, missed any of it. That was Stephen Fitzpatrick, CEO of Vertical Aerospace. Our thanks to him. Coming up, a new push by a Wall Street bank to get employees back in the office. That's next. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. Goldman Sachs lifting its COVID-19 protocols, saying employees can now return to most of its U.S. offices regardless of their vaccination status. The bank has been pushing to get employees back to the office um, to go back to work. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, so what are employees saying about this? Are they have are they really excited to start commuting again and come back to the office? Well, the company would say, I spoke to company officials yesterday who said, look, we have been back in the office full time since last year. This is an evolution of that. But Goldman Sachs, one of the largest investment banks, certainly on Wall Street, some would even say the world, are really welcoming back employees with open arms, regardless of vaccination at most of its U.S. offices, not the New York City global headquarters, but at other locations from Atlanta to Boston to Tampa and really across the coast from coast to coast. So the company is saying that regardless of vaccination, status, uh, whether you are vaccinated or not, you will no longer have to be required to wear face coverings and you will no longer have to participate in uh, mandatory testing. The company saying in an internal memo that I was able to obtain that with many tools, including vaccination, improved treatments and testing now available, there is significantly less risk of severe illness. Look, the banks have been among the most aggressive to get workers back in seats, to get butts back in seats, to get people back in the office, whether it's for morale, whether it's for team building. Uh, Morgan Stanley also pushing to get people back in the office uh, famously. Uh, J.P. Morgan, the same. So we have seen this push uh, certainly from the big investment banks. But it remains to be seen, Allison, how how employees will feel about this, because we know that there is still really strong demand for workers. We got some new data this week, uh, JOLTS data that suggested there are still more than 11 million job openings right now more broadly, still about two open jobs for every one person looking. So job seekers still have an advantage here. However, investment banking, of course, uh, famously competitive, uh, famously lucrative. So we'll have to see if these uh, policies that are coming down, really enforcing uh, that we want you back in the office, will be received well all in all when it's all said and done, Allison. Yeah, we will see who really has the leverage now, now that the excuses have been taken off the table. Raul Solomon, thanks so much. And finally, on First Move, a rare sight of a phantom. This is what's called a phantom galaxy, a spiral of solar systems 32 million light years from Earth. NASA says the image was made from using data from both of its major space telescopes, Hubble and James Webb. Between them, they're giving scientists a greater understanding of this galaxy and producing some pretty spectacular images of the cosmos. What do you think? That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World is next. I'll see you tomorrow.